2: Welcome to the Dear Son Podcast. This is a safe space where men share their fatherhood journey. These conversations are transparent and, more importantly, vulnerable. Now, because each fatherhood story is situationally nuanced, some topics are heavier than others. The commonality found amongst all the guests is a genuine desire to help and inspire other men through telling their story. And now... Here's your host, Derek Johns. Welcome to the Dear Son Podcast. This is a safe space where men have vulnerable conversations about the fatherhood journey. Sometimes those conversations are heavy, sometimes they're light. It changes from guest to guest. I never know until I start the show. Start the show we shall. As you see in the split screen, I have a guest, a virtual guest, a, uh, a very eloquent brother that you will meet very soon, I want you to welcome Tim Austin to the Dear Son Podcast. Welcome to the show, my brother. How are you?
3: Thank you so much for having me. I am proud of you and what you're doing. We're going to help to heal some fathers today.
2: Absolutely. Tim, I'm going to enjoy calling you Tim because I've never done it so much in my life. (laughs) Taking full advantage of it. I'm letting you know now. You're retired. Yes, I am. Help the people, help those less fortunate understand how your life shifted the day retirement became your status.
3: That's a very good question. Um, I would say that it shifted because then I had more time available to myself. And so when I would see people and they would ask me, because the common question that men ask each other is, what do you do? Mm. and that's a common question because of the fact that we men derive our selfhood from our living and what we do and so i am easy at saying to them what do i do i said, well my main job is being a loving husband mm. and a doting father and in between the spare time of that that which is left over i write books you write but let's talk about that a little bit where did that passion come from and
2: what book are you on now? It's probably 75 or so, but give or take.
3: Who says flattery gets you nowhere? Your, your parents trained you very well in Virginia.
2: I listen I, half the time.
3: I see. Okay, well, that, that's half better than most most of us. My father used to work um, growing up as a child. He worked the graveyard shift at Massachusetts General Hospital. We were living in the greater Boston area for the early part of my life. Mm. And he worked 11 to seven as a nurse's aide in Massachusetts General Hospital. When he would come home in the mornings on our way to school, my mother was the principal of the church school there in Boston, dad was first elder. When he would come home in the mornings he would bring the newspaper with him from work, the morning paper. He was either the Herald Traveler or the Boston Globe. Hmm. And I became very fixed on reading the newspaper. And that evening when I would get home from school when we'd have family dinner, yeah. Um, I would, after dinner, we would, as a general rule, look at the news on TV. At that time it was the Huntley Brinkley Report. And so I became very, very transfixed on that. After dinner, after watching the news, like I said, Dad worked from 11 to 7. Mm-hmm. It was standard. It was routine for me to see Dad go into the living room or in the bedroom, on his side of the bed, the right side of the bed, which coincidentally I now sleep on in, in my own family. I would watch him with, with three, actually four, publications every mm. night without fail. He had his Bible, he had his study quarterly, which we call that Sabbath school quarterly, sure. and he either had a copy of Time Magazine or Prevention Magazine. That was the standard for Dad, and even though Dad was not college educated, he was not college degree. let me put it that way. Mm. And Mom was college educated and she was a principal and a teacher, hmm. while she read vocationally, Daddy read avocationally. This was his hobby. And just by that association, I just began to develop a passion for reading. And so as I look back on it now, um, those were some seeds planted in me almost involuntarily but one of the things that we say is men and I was a charter member of the chapter Greater Huntsville Chapter Alabama of the 100 Black Men of America. Okay. One of our national themes is what they see is what they'll be. What they nice. what they see is what they'll be. And I said and I guess by association environmentally watching dad read watching dad read and being very conversant about the news. We're talking about the early mid 60s yeah. which is a very very volatile time in our in our society. And so when he would talk about those issues, even as in a general way, those seeds began to sink in. And so after my career for 41 years in public relations and marketing, primarily in higher education or with nonprofit organizations, I went basically to the Bible text in terms of retirement of mm-hmm. Exodus 4-2 when God said to Moses, What is that in thine hand? Moses said, it's a rod. He said, throw it on the ground. He threw it on the ground and became a snake and Moses the shepherd jumped back in fear and God said something that was improbable. God said to him, pick, pick it, it up. up, right by the tail. Now anybody that has the, any experience with snakes know that you do not mm-hmm. pick up a snake by its right. tail because it will simply just coil around sure. and bite you venomously. Sure, But God told Moses, pick up the snake by its tail and against all the conventional wisdom Moses picked it up by his tail. It became a rod again. Moses got the message. And that was your self-confidence is going to be overruled by your God confidence. And so I began to look at what is that in my hand? Well, I was a writer. Hmm. I was going to read my Bible. I said, why don't you start pairing as you did as a child in home, involuntarily at the dinner table. And at the dinner table is where values are taught but also, as you know, Derek, from your home, values are also caught. Absolutely. So they are taught and caught. And so I just begin to look at public events, current events, newsmakers, in the light of the Bible. Sure. And that became my calling. And so what I do now, when I write, either on my weekly newspaper column or in the books that I write, which I'll speak about momentarily, is that I present current events and newsmakers in the light of biblical best practices. For example, let me give you a little sneak preview on a column I'm gonna write a week or two from now. Last week, and we're talking about the week that ended on January 29th, two major sporting news events happened. Number one is they selected the Baseball Hall of Fame and Barry Bond, the home run leader, Mm -hmm. was not picked again. And at the end of the week, Tom Brady, retired after 22 seasons of winning some seven Super Bowls. right? And so many people are saying that Tom Brady is the greatest of all times. And also the statistics say that Barry Bonds is the greatest home run hitter. But my column, which deals with biblical best practices, I'm looking at them as greatness with an asterisk. Greatness with an asterisk because Everybody said, yeah, he hit those home runs, but he cheated. Sure. And Tom Brady, yes, he won seven Super Bowls, but he was accused, and rightfully so, of deflate gate right. and some other scams. And so when people talk about him being the greatest, I say, yeah, but. Hmm. So my point is to take a current event, current newsmakers, sure. marry them to biblical best practices such as thou shall not bear false witness, And ask my audience and say to them, if you've got some asterisk in your life, get rid of them now.
2: Gotcha. Gotcha. All right, let's pause right here because I want want to go back. We jumped ahead a little bit. I want to go back to that young boy, that young man that was reading Mother by Vocation, Father by Advocation. Which was it for you? Did it take you to another place? What was your other than mimicking? Why did you read?
3: Well, I read because I watched mom and dad read. I watched dad read out of sheer pleasure. See, just to mm. give some more background, if I'm answering your question right, sure. my father never knew his father, Okay. never knew his dad. Since My dad was born in 1917 in Lewisburg, North Carolina. And from all the history I could piece together, his was, name was Thomas Alston, with just mm-hmm. one L, Alston. Um, I talked with my great uncle before he passed at age 98 and I said tell me about my grandfather and he just said to me he says he was quite a character that's all he said yeah. now my grandmother my father's mother whenever I could pull information out of her she always referred to him as trim so I thought that trim was his name until I got older (laughs) and wiser in terms of hood dictionary, I began to realize that trim is that colloquialism we use in the hood for illicit sex.
2: Right, it's characteristic, it's a trim. Yes,
3: yeah. (laughs) I, when we, my family and I, my wife, our daughter and I went to Cincinnati for a convention in 2012, and there they had just opened up what we refer to as the National Underground Railroad Museum.
2: Mm.
3: On the fourth floor, they have a kind of like an Ancestry.com okay. that's free. So I said, let me try to find out some information about this man who was my grandfather. I dug and dug and dug, and I found a person that was around the same age that would have been eligible to have fathered my father at age, at in 1917. I found a paper from a draft board that denied him... Um, uh, uh, his deferment, because he was claiming the fact that he was a father and therefore couldn't go fight in World War I, mm. and so piecing this stuff together now. I also know that in 1930, my grandmother and her family moved from Lewisburg, North Carolina, to the greater Boston, Massachusetts area. I've got the papers from that, the street census back then. I knew that for a fact. But I also noticed the fact that our name changed from a 1L Alston to a 2L Alston. And I said to myself, she probably did that in mm-hmm. her attempt to distance herself from a failed relationship. Because yeah. what she did was she named my father after his father, perhaps believing that this would maybe uh, domesticate him in some way. Wow. It didn't work. You know? Wow. So. Dad was raised primarily by his grandmother and aunts and female cousins. My grandmother was a domestic worker uh, in other parts of New England, like New York, Plattsburgh, New York, and some other places. He credits his uncles with being that male figure for him growing up. But the other thing that Daddy did, what he did not know and what he did not have in terms of self-confidence, he was unapologetic about reading his Bible Mm. and studying his Bible and getting his marching orders from his Bible. Mm. Then, as long as, and as long as he lived. Mm. So I got that example from him. Dad became a first elder in our church. When I was born, he was the Sabbath school superintendent, I guess in general terms, he was the head of the Bible study program in our local church, and then ultimately became a local elder and then became the first elder. I was always seeing him reading for pleasure, Hmm. not for homework, not for a job assignment, but for pleasure. Mom, on the other hand, was the church school principal. So she read because of her job. And so seeing reading for pleasure and reading for vocation, I began to intersect those two things to the extent now, Derek, yeah. and my wife will tell you, I've never met a bookstore that I don't like. Got it. Just to be in a bookstore, just to just just just, just to smell the, the the paper the parchment just to touch the paper i mean digital is nice but yeah. it ain't paper
2: yeah and, to smell the paper you you speak very colorfully do you do you attribute that to your love for reading or was that something else that was demonstrated by your, your parents that you
3: picked up values are taught and values are caught and i spent my earliest years in church school and i spent my earliest years in church and you hear church for black people is the only true leadership development tool that we have that's available to us all all of us are not going to work in a corporation like you derek all of us are not going to work in higher education like me all of us are not going to go into the military all of us are not going to um to have some other options but we all have available to us the church and it is the only real place of freedom that we've had and through the church we have been able to see all types of manifestations for example in our churches and it's across the board denomination notwithstanding black people will go to a minister for medical advice before <laughs> they go to a minister before they go to a medical doctor why is that? we'll go to a minister for legal advice yeah. before we have returned to an attorney, because with us, the preacher is king, because we believe he, because of his training, his and her training, let me say, we believe that they have a direct pipeline from God and they dispense it to us in measures proportioned to our faith. So we hear the color, we hear um, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the infotainment, of a sermon, <laughs> yeah. information and entertainment. And I've learned that excellent sermons, excellent public speaking is the delicate balance between information and inspiration. We've all heard people who are very informational and put us to sleep, kind of like a lecture in college. Yeah. And then we've also heard people that are totally inspirational. It makes us feel good at the moment, but after a while you begin to feel, if, if I could be so politically incorrect, it hits us like oriental food. You just kind of say, I, I've eaten it, but 15 minutes later, well, uh, did I really eat it all? Right. But we get all of that experience within the black church, within churches in general. So the color in my language primarily comes from being in a church environment where we've had the freedom of expression, but also, and, 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 and in full transparency, I also chose to go to college and to major and get a bachelor's degree in English.
2: There it is. There it is. So the really interesting point that I wanna pull out is the reliance in the black community on the preacher, the figure, the preacher, right? Do Do you really think it's more of because of our trust in that position or our distrust in positions outside of the church because of history?
3: The quick answer is it's neither either or, it is yes and. Gotcha we when even when it was illegal for us in slavery to have church services we had church services yeah you know um and we had them in the woods where we couldn't be found because when we came out of africa we came with strong religious beliefs and strong religious practices. Sure. In fact, it was the only thing that we could rely on. I was talking to our daughter recently. She is 18 years old and, and applying for colleges. And we were, I was talking to her about, she was asking me questions about HBCUs, Historically Black Colleges and Universities. Right. And I was explaining to her the difference between private schools and public institutions you know, you've got a, a host of them there in Texas. I mean, a school like, for example, a uh, Paul Quinn College, mm-hmm. you know, was founded by a church. Whereas a Texas Southern is a state-run institution. A school like Wiley College I, I, or, uh, is founded is founded privately. But then mm-hmm. a school like Prairie View A&M yeah. is, is a state-funded public institution. And I said, most of our schools a Morehouse, a Spelman, most of our schools were founded as church institutions. Even outside of that realm, Harvard College in Boston, Harvard University, was founded as a religious school because religious freedom was 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 part was one of the hallmarks of the founding of this country. So it's not surprising in the black community where church is so prevalent. Um, as I said, you know. It is not a coincidence that our leaders primarily have their roots in the church. Mm-hmm. I had the privilege of uh, meeting with a woman, a white woman in Dallas, Texas, who was a professional speaking coach, and we were talking. She had written a book about Zig Ziglar, mm-hmm. uh, who for us is, is probably the most prominent uh, motivational speaker of the 20th century, he passed away about several years ago. And as she and I were talking, she asked me, said, Excuse me, because was on the phone. She said, Are you an African American? I said, Yes. She said, I thought so. She said, there is something about African Americans. She said, I want to write a book, do a study on African Americans and church. I said, Yes. I said, that is primarily where we learned to speak. Uh, we learned to, to get up when someone was not there, we were called upon in an instant to get up and and speak. That's where I learned how to speak. I mean, you talk about father's influence and mother's influence, Derek. I can remember at my earliest age, I've been two, three, or four years old, as we were riding to church many times in the evenings in, in that 1948 Pontiac car. I can remember, mom was the homeland school leader and dad was an uh, elder. I can remember almost like I'm sitting here right now. um, Mom would say, We're going back to church for a program. She said to us, I had an older sister, Dawn, who's two years older than me. She said, The work of the Lord must go on. Hmm. And dad would turn around invariably and say, If so and so doesn't show up, Timmy, you, and Dawn be ready to step in there in a moment with a poem. A Bible verse, a recitation, wow. because we won't stop the program because so-and-so doesn't show up. Yeah. And so after a while, you learn to develop as a child an arsenal of things, sure. an arsenal of texts, an arsenal of recitations, so that everywhere I've gone in my life, I am always prepared, if ever called upon, to speak. But gotcha. that's the nature of the black church. So when you look at our leadership, primarily, our leadership have has as its roots and as its fruits the training, the leadership development in the black church. So let me throw a slight curveball. Okay. At least in my mind, it's a
2: curveball. Um, I have observed in my lifetime the forty-two. 42- 42, 42, 42 years. I'm no. old, man. I told oh, you before. 42. You're the oldest you've ever been today. Yes. I am. I And I feel it more than yesterday. <laughs> so what I, what I have noticed is that um, in some cases, uh, we have professional church people, right? They're prepared to do all the things that you said. They can sing on a minute's notice. They have a sermon. They have a word. They have a way to to stand in the gap for somebody else. But communication at home isn't so great. Mm. What was communication like with the the picture that you've painted of your parents very heavily um, not driven, but uh, your home was guarded by a church standard, by by a Christian standard, uh, religious standard. Was there a different side of them in the communication at home? And what was that like?
3: Okay, that's an excellent question. Well, thank you, Tim. I'm a podcaster. Yeah, yeah, hey, (laughs) I'm I'm learning from you. (laughs) Research tells us that the average man, average male uses about 12,000 words a day, whereas the average female uses approximately 57,000 words a day. Uh, Women are much more expressive, men are not. My father once said to me, and, 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 and it played out in our home, mom was the talker. Mom, mom was the one, uh, if you give back in history, was the one who was, whose goal was growing up as a child in Birmingham, Alabama, her goal in the late 30s, early 40s was to go after high school graduation in 1945, was to go to Hollywood to become the next Lena Horne, wow. the next Dorothy Dandridge. Wow. But what happened in the summer of 44, is a, a, a revival crusade came through town and she was one of 14 children in her family. She was number eight
2: mm. and
3: from number eight to 14 and her parents were all baptized into the Seventh-day Adventist Church.
2: Wow, a dream deferred.
3: Yes, whereupon she went back to her high school, the little all Negro segregated Fairfield Industrial and Technical High School told her drama teacher that because she'd accepted this new faith, it discouraged or spurned pursuing careers in entertainment for which her teacher told her she was a fool, straight up. Hmm. She then in turn graduated high school, went on to Oakwood College up the street Mm -hmm. and um, never lost that passion and therefore directed that into being an elementary school teacher and also into coordinating and directing plays both in the church and in the school. So that there was that passion there.
2: Yeah.
3: Um, she was the talker. She was the person up front. She was 10 years younger than my father. Dad was always quiet, always demure. Dad, dad could be sitting right here beside me in this, uh, in this podcast interview with a headset and microphone on <laughs> and would not say a word unless you directed a question to him, Derrick. Yeah. He would not enter in the conversation, he would not interrupt, he would not insert himself. And when he did, it would be, well, let me put it this way. In 1974, my father said to me something I'll never forget. He said, Timmy, there are two kinds of people in the world. One that has to say something and one that has something to say. And and, that. And, and and I remember saying that to my class of students I was teaching at Oakwood College at the time. One of those students has ultimately become a pastor. And every time I see him, he pastors in Nashville, Tennessee. He uh-huh. says, Mr. Alston, I will never forget what you told us that day. So that information became actually transgenerational but your but your question is very, very good about the difference, if any, between the home communication and the outside communication. Um, I remember, and see you're, 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 you're a youngster, so you may not remember <laughs> um, Johnny Carson I who do, was the uh, show. Yeah, very good. You go to the head of the class. Um, Johnny Carson made the comment once, and Ed McMahon recorded it in his book. That was his co-host at one time. Very good. That's right. (laughs) That's right. Your parents have done a wonderful job with you. (laughs) He He said, Johnny Carson said, I am impressive in front of 10 million people, but I am horrible in front of 10 people. I am impressive in front of 10 million people, but I'm horrible in front of 10 people. Let's, let's, let's pause right
2: there. We're gonna take a break, here from a sponsor because I wanna hear how that resonated with you then and now. We're gonna hear from a sponsor. We'll be right back. What's good, fam? I know you're enjoying the episode, but I am excited to share with you today a brand new sponsor to the DSP family. Tate Wellum T-A-T-E-W-H-A-L-U-N, Tate Wellem. High fashion accessories, watches. I mean, the timepieces are exquisite. If I do say so myself, I prefer the executive collection. There are several to choose from. What I need you to do is head over to their website, T-A-T-E-W-H-A-L-U-N.com. When you get to check out, after you fill your basket with all the things that I know you're gonna find there, Use the code THE DSP, T H E D S P, for 20% off. They'll know that I sent you Tate and Black Owned, Responsibly Managed, new sponsor to the podcast. I look forward to the continuing partnership. God bless. Back to the show. And we are back, people. We left on a profound uh, quote from the late great Johnny Carson uh, I am impressive in front of 10 million. And what was the second? I am of what is I am, a I am horrible in horrible. front
3: of ten, horrible in front of ten. Is that your story? Unfortunately, Derek, yes. Hmm. In the Gospel according to my wife Elaine Hamilton, the one that matters most—that it really is. Yeah. I'm I'm a public speaker, and one of the problems that happen with public speakers is oftentimes we may be we may be professional speakers, but we're very very poor listeners. Hmm. Because we've been so used to giving it out. And as I like to say, that when you talk, you know, first of all, no one learns anything by talking. We learn everything by listening. When we talk, we immobilize ourselves. And when we listen, we mobilize ourselves. The same letters that make up the word listen are the exact same letters that make up the word silent. It is true. And, um, and it, and it, it zeroes right back to me. Uh, I remember before you were born mm. in Hampton, Virginia, yeah. my freshman year at Ham, what was then Hampton Institute, my roommate said to me, he said, Tim, he said, you're a very good speaker, but you're a piss poor listener. Mm. And when you learn to become a better listener, you'll become a better speaker. And it took me some 30 years, Derek, to learn the fact that listening requires humility. And my father was a master at that. He would listen, he would sit there quietly in a meeting or at the dinner table, not say a word, but he heard everything. He processed everything. And in its appropriate time, it would come out. I now, at this ripe old age of 67, I'm trying now to reach back and learn some of those lessons that I should have been picking up by osmosis yeah. at the dinner table. Yeah. Um, one of the things my father would say, my sister tells me, dad would say, you need to think twice, think three times before you answer a question. Yeah, And I have not followed that. Um, It is easier sometimes, following the Johnny Carson quotation, unfortunately, it is easier sometimes for me to speak publicly than it is for me to speak privately. But the home is the foundation of the nation. And so I've had to learn, and I'm still learning, how to speak, how to use the various different love languages for my wife. I'm trying to learn now, and this is the tough one, man how to learn to speak or really to listen to my millennial daughter. Oof, I, I, have, I, I had a, a, one of my mentors talk to me the other night who was a pastor. And she said, he said, Tim, the paradigm that we use doesn't work with them. Yeah. They don't, the things that are most important to us are not to them. Yeah. And it was helpful to me because I, our daughter's in the process of, of trying to choose a college. And I have a passion for one, and my wife has her passion for another. And, but when he said this to me, he said, Tim, you've got to believe that the seeds that you've planted Mm. will germinate. You've got to trust God and trust the process. Just yesterday, Derek, my wife and I and daughter went to visit a, a college that was neither my choice nor my daughter's choice. And when, but when we hit the campus, because of that woodshed conversation I had with my my form, my mentor, my yeah. former boss, it opened me up to the prospect of the school as a possibility, and I'm glad it did because as I watched our daughter with the tour guides, I had never seen her as animated. Hmm. I'd never seen her talk as much. I'd never seen her ask as many questions. Yeah. And halfway through the tour, because uh, we were with another couple and their son, she turned to my wife and my wife a few minutes later turned to me and said, Morgan has just said this school has jumped from number four on the list to number one on the list. I said, yeah. whoa. And I'm grateful to God that he allowed me the humility of listening yeah. to be able to receive what, will, what may ultimately become the school that she has chosen. Right. And to trust the process that the seeds that we've planted in her will ultimately germinate and will grow tall and strong. But I am still, Derek, working on becoming as effective a communicator at home right. as I am in the public space. And that's a challenge, but I recognize how, it. How, how long were you a public speaker? I, my first public speech was when I was three years old in 1958 on a children's TV show back in Boston. Hmm. That was my first one, the first one that I recall. Yeah, um, and I've been professionally speaking ever since, so we're talking about, I guess, some 64 years. Did it ever at any point become a high for you? Oh, public speaking is a high. Yeah. Oh yes. Oh yes. It, it, it becomes a high because of all of the gifts that one can have, Winston Churchill said, nothing is more powerful than oratory. I mean, um, and I, I would, if, 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 I were, if I were agile enough, I'd reach back and grab the book and pull that quote out from Winston Churchill. But yeah, when you stand in front of people, and I've, and I've studied it long enough, you in many respects, if you are God-driven, you are holding some valuable keys in your hand that could be life or death for someone. Mm. And so you can't take the speaking engagement lightly. And so there are, there, are, there are tips that I use when I speak, when I tell people about speaking. I said, number I said, you know, number one, go low, start slow, rise higher, strike fire, and then retire. You know, to break it down even more, number one, people love stories. Tell sure. people stories. Sure. You know, whenever people, people ask Jesus a question, he said, let me tell you a story, which we call the parable. A certain sure. man had two sons, or there was a widow who had, who lost her might, you know. That's number one. Number two is people don't want to hear about Daniel in the Lion's Den. They want to hear about Derek in the Lion's Den. Mm. They want to hear every story you've ever heard, every book you've ever read, every movie you've ever seen
2: yeah.
3: is a journey from no to yes, from problem to solution.
2: Mm hmm
3: from slavery to freedom. People want to know how Derek got into this, what did he do to get it resolved, what was the final results. Every movie, every book, every article. And the third step, and very few people know this as public speakers, even preachers, when you tell a story, tell the story so that you are not the hero, but you are the brunt of the joke. Which draws those sympathies to you, yeah. You know, make be big enough to show your vulnerability. Uh, uh, there's one I tell that that was as funny to me. We were on a family trip and we stopped at Burger King to get something to eat, and we got our food. and My daughter looked at my tray. She said, "Daddy, you usually get a fish tail. Why do not you get a fish tail?" I said, "I said, Daddy's trying to be a, a vegan these days." She said, "What's that?" I said, "I don't eat anything that walks, swims, crawls, or flies." She said, "Huh." I said I don't eat anything with a mother or a, or a face, <laughs> you know. So she said like, oh, okay. So I go to pick up my French fries, and my smart smart wife says, "You can't eat that." I said, "Why not?" She said, "Because potatoes have eyes." Nice. I knew you were going there. <laughs> I'm going, I'm going. Ah, but I tell that story because it breaks me down. Yeah. In front of the audience. Yeah. And so, um we are moved by speech. Yeah. We're moved by speech, and so therefore, we have to treat it as though it is a a, a gift of God. The definition of preaching is the power, the the ordained power of of personal testimony. And so that's why we are so drawn to speech, and it works.
2: I'm glad you mentioned the word gift. Cause I want to, I want to, I want to help somebody that is at the peak of their career as you were, or maybe as you are, I don't know where you're arcing, but you know, at the, at, at the time when you were on somebody's stage every week, every weekend, three or four times a week, whatever it was, how would you manage your gift differently? Or would you, how would I manage a gift differently from, from the, the, the public speaking that you became good at great at to it becoming a drug and having a sense of control because of that draw, that that high that you get from it, mm-hmm. and the 10 million great, 10 terrible, that whole um, scenario, mm-hmm. like how would you manage it differently to be better with the 10?
3: Well, that's a good, that's, no, that, that, that's a very, very good question. In terms of where I am in my career and my life, yeah. I really believe I am entering to the best years of my life. I almost believe that everything else has been a practice session yeah. for where I am now. I believe I'm at my highest point. Um, in terms of public speaking, in terms of how do you master the 10 to be equivalent to mastering the 10 million, yeah. the key, I, I can't say this enough, is to come into the situation as a listener, hmm. as a listener, because virtually all the answers we need in life will come from our listening yeah. and not from our speaking. Yeah. And the key is to ask um, probing questions. I mean, it's the story of Jesus at age uh, 13 at the temple. Temple, yeah. You know, uh, I, I love that text. He sat with them, he asked them, uh, he sat with them, he listened to them, and then from the listening he asked them probing questions. Yeah. Now he was the one who created everything they were talking about. They didn't know who he was, but as he began to dissect what they were saying from sitting with them, listening to them, and then, from the listening, asking questions, then he basically dismantled them. They said, where's this boy? Where's he come right. from? He's not, his was parents? he your student? He's not my, was he your student? You yeah. know, he baffled them by his questions. Yeah. The questions were drawn from his listening. So the real key, I mean, the story I love to tell, is in 1988, when George Bush, George H.W. Bush was running for president, Uh, His wife was part of the campaign and looking to be the First Lady, and so they sent her out on the road to try to push what would be her initiative, which was going to be literacy and education. Mm -hmm. Well, they sent her to Milwaukee, Wisconsin to give a speech. But for some unknown reason, the speech did not arrive with her. And she was talking to the group of the Wisconsin State, Wisconsin Educators Association. And being a mother, she pivoted. And she turned to the audience and said, if you were in my position as first lady, what would be your educational initiatives? These people were more than willing to educate her because she gave them that opportunity to educate. And when we, people love to talk about themselves, all of us do, that's why I'm enjoying sure. this interview. You know, <laughs> but When we give people that opportunity, they will, as I said, they will immobilize themselves and they will mobilize you. And from that, she began to put together her campaign strategy on literous, children's literacy. Not because she gave a great speech but because she became a great listener. You know, as is often said, and you've heard it a hundred times, God gave us uh, two, ears two ears and yeah. one mouth yeah. that we may hear twice as much as we say. How did um, How did fatherhood
2: impact your speaking ability or your approach to public speaking?
3: It was May. Two thousand seven. our daughter was three and a half years old. It was a Friday night. I had just come home from uh, chorale rehearsal at church. And when I got home, my wife and daughter were in her room playing and talking, and my wife said, listen to this. And she said, Morgan, go ahead. And Morgan recited the Fourth Commandment. Hmm. Three and a half. And then my wife turned to me with, what I would consider to have been an impossible request. She said, Tim, I think she's ready now to learn the I have a dream speech. I'm going, whoa. Hmm. I had not thought that far. I thought I was the visionary in the family. I hadn't thought that <laughs> far in advance. And so I said right. I said, okay. So in my taking her to school back and forth every day, I asked her if she was sitting in her car seat in the back seat. They're taking her to school. I said, Morgan, do you want to learn the the Martin Luther King speech? She said, yes, daddy. I said, well let me tell you something right now. I said, repeat after daddy, I said, life is hard, life is hard, by the yard, by the yard, but it's a cinch, it's a cinch, by the, by inch. the inch, by the inch. I said, what we're going to do is take that speech and break it down sentence by sentence. We're going to learn a sentence every week. Mm. If I'd known you going to ask the question, I would. I would pulled up the newspaper article that I have here. No, Tim, I don't know what question I'm going to ask. It's okay, it's okay, it's okay. I'm not not berating you or browbeating you, I'm browbeating me. And so, as it turned out, several months later, in October, November, I was asked by a community college to speak for their Martin Luther King observance. And I said, this would be a wonderful chance for me to debut our daughter
2: mm.
3: as a public speaker. So I said, Daddy's the keynote speaker. I said, do you want to end Daddy's speech with the I Have a Dream speech? She said, yes, Daddy. And so the, our then four-year-old daughter ended my ended my speech with I Have a Dream speech. Hmm. And quite, quite fittingly, I gave her a portion of my honorarium. I said, this is your first public speaking honorarium, and then the state association asked me to come and speak to their state association in October of that year, and then they said, and uh, could could you bring your daughter with you? you <laughs> oh, know. wow. Yeah. So um, that became, and then she got got her another honorarium there too, so you don't know where that's going to go, but she has had the ability to speak in public. and. And it's and I think that's part of my my teaching style, yeah. and that is leading by example. What they see is what they'll be. Yeah. And um, as I watch her now as a junior clerk at church, and as I watch her as an assistant basketball coach now, even in high school for the girls, her uh, middle school girls basketball team, and watch her talking to them and coaching them, yeah, you you see pieces of yourself there. And I said, okay. That's part of that father style. But what I'm trying to learn now more and more, I'm a mama's boy. Mm. Um, mom was the upfront person, the outfront person. She was the, the teacher. She was the principal. She was the, the drama teacher. I've been that public person uh, uh, giving speeches. Dad was the behind the scene person. Dad was always the person. He was the wind beneath her wings. And what I'm trying to learn now is because I'm now, here in Huntsville, in that scenario, as the retired person, as the at-home entrepreneur, and yes. let me just pause here, there are there are 24 million fathers in this country, 24 million. Yes. There are 214,000 stay-at-home dads like me. That's about uh, eight one-hundredth of one percent. Um, I'm one of those stay at home dads. I operate my business from home here, yeah, so while my wife is out working, I'm now that proverbs thirty one man. and so um the one who te- who um who makes sure that things get done around the house while she's out making the living it's It's a challenge uh, mentally, emotionally, but it's the reality of things. And yeah. so um, what I'm learning to do more and more is recognize, Derek, that the model for what I do now, I learned by osmosis from my father. Mm. Because when my family moved in 1972 from the greater Boston area, from Everett, Massachusetts specifically, moved 1,471 miles to Huntsville, Alabama, there was a seismic shift in the family. Dad had always been the, bre- the, the primary breadwinner. Mm-hmm. But by moving to Huntsville and moving to a college campus and to a higher education institution where degrees mattered, he did not have a degree. Mom did. So she then became the primary breadwinner. He then became secondary. Now, I've got a good friend of mine, a Dr. Emerson Miller, who's written a book entitled Why Black Men Don't Attend Church. And one of the things he says in that book was that in the 70s, when the civil rights forced doors open in our society, mm-hmm. corporate America reached out to hire blacks, but they were hiring the college-degreed black women. Mm-hmm. The brothers were not as degreed, still are not that degreed, and it began to cause tension in households. Yeah. One of the tensions that grew out of that, according to his book, is the fact that because she was looking for some degree of community and someone to talk to on her level, and her man was not that equipped, the man who could talk, like she understood, was that preacher in the pulpit. Mm. And as he would talk and talk God, and he became that God figure to her, and she would come home and often say one time too many what Reverend so-and-so said and brother man sitting on the couch watching the NFL said, I don't want to hear about that, I don't want to hear nothing about that, and that began to create the schism in a lot of Black relationships. Yeah, A lot of them. Yeah. Fortunately, Derek, that did not happen in our household. Dad was such a cheerleader for my mother. He was so proud of this person that he married, who mm. he knew was on a professional trajectory up, yeah. that it was no problem for him being the wind beneath her wings, um, being the nerve center of the family, so that when mom was away in the summers working on her master's degree or excuse me, later years, when she became a consultant, educational consultant in Russia, in Hachachibbe, Alabama, in Pensacola, Florida, in the Cayman Islands, and finally in North China. You know, dad was the one at home that kept, was the nerve center, which would allow her to spend eight consecutive decades teaching until she ultimately retired. But dad was that glue and he could do that because as I like to say, there was no shame in his game. Right. And what I learned as I began to think about this and and to break it apart, his influence was powerful. I mean, my younger sister is a nurse today, a nurse's aide today here at a local hospital in Huntsville because of dad's influence. Mm. My younger brother just got his master's in business in healthcare management, indirectly modeling my father in healthcare. Wow! My older sister, you know, dad played the piano, he played the clarinet, he played the saxophone. My sister and I, play the piano and the clarinet. She played clarinet I played piano and saxophone because of dad's role model. What they Hmm. see is what what they'll be. be. And so, but coming to Huntsville in 1998, after only been married for four years, my wife and I coming here, like my parents, working at Oakwood College, ultimately I left to become uh, an early stage entrepreneur. financial paradigm also shifted. She Mm -hmm. became and remains the predominant breadwinner. I've become the Proverbs 31 man in the household, but I fortunately have my father's godly, consistent, willing servant leadership model to go by. Hypothetically,
2: you're assigned, you're charged to write an article that addresses the gap between who you are today and the man you ultimately want to be. What would be the title of that article?
3: Welcome to the boomerang. (laughs) And I would explain that the boomerang is that Australian object of sport that when, when launched, it goes to its highest levels but has the uncanny knack of coming back to its point of origination. Hmm. I am realizing the fact that I am coming back to model and emulate lovingly that man who was there every day of my life for those first 18 years, who I basically did not Pay a lot of attention to. But I've got to tell this sad story, Derek. Since 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 I have committed to this podcast and to be vulnerable, that's here. I spent so many years of my life, my adult life, looking for mentors, looking for role models, and I had a snag in 1989. Working and living in Chicago, I had a real emotional down point, financially and emotionally. And prayed for God to rescue me, to pull me out. The lady who was my first and only babysitter growing up came to Chicago for a meeting, a conference at her job. Uh, we talked on the phone and I didn't get. It, I wanted to get a chance to see her, just just to hug her, just to chat with her and I arranged to take her to the airport from Chicago out to the airport on that Friday evening. And as we sat in the car, just talking, just small talking, she would begin to share stories about my father when I was growing up and when she was growing up, she was obviously several years my senior. Mm-hmm. And I'm listening, and while I was there at those situations, I never really understood them, the impact of them nor did I understand his role in them because mom was the talker. And she said something to me that I'll never forget. And every time I see her, I remind her of that. She said, Tim, when it comes to your father, no, she said, said, first of all, she said, there was not a single decision made in your household that your father did not sign off on.
2: Hmm.
3: I said, wow. She said, nothing was done that he did not approve of. And she said, and I said to her, I said, oh my God. I said, I've been looking all over for a role model. And he was right there in my house through my most formative years. And that's when she said, Tim, let me tell you something. When it comes to your father, do not mistake his meekness for weakness. I said, whoa. When I went home that Christmas some eight months later, came home to Huntsville from Chicago, got in that Friday night, family worship, sitting at the dinner table, I had to break down and in my judgment, eat some crow. Mm. And I told Dad and Mom was sitting at that story. And I said, Dad, I said I apologize. I said I have second-guessed you and second-rated you all of my life. Yeah. I apologize. And all Dad said was, "Oh, okay." You know. No 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 fanfare, no bombast. <laughs> um but I but I needed to say that to him. Yeah. I needed to say it for me. I needed to say it for him. Yeah. And um As I now go on in life, and he passed away in 2004 from Alzheimer's, mom is still alive, she's still vibrant at age 94. Wow. As I am growing in my relationship with my heavenly father, Derek, Mm -hmm. my earthly father becomes Herculean in size now. I find myself talking to my older sister, her name is Dawn, she's two years older than me, she lives here also in Huntsville. And she will share things with me because she was daddy's girl. She was the firstborn mm. child. She, you know, daddy, you know, daughters and daddies and mamas and sons. Oh yeah, for you sure. know, we, we know that story for sure. And so, she would tell me things that I was around but was not cognizant of, um, because he would t- he would he would talk to her. I guess because she would listen to him. Right. Uh, uh, more than because I was I was the mama's boy, yeah, and so that has affected my to answer your question my my father my fathering style because I now have a daughter, yeah, you know she's our only child, and so I will take time now to spend more time in talking to her. Because what they see is what they'll be, yeah. and for example, when she now. Um, is industrious. She started working when she was 14 years old. Mm. She saved her money. She paid her faithful tithe and offerings. And um, last summer, last spring, rather, she did her research and went out and paid cash in full for her first car. Awesome. You know, and so now she takes herself to school and work and everything else. Yeah. Uh, but before she leaves the house, um, you know, I'm usually up in the morning and I'll always. You know, you don't leave the house unless we have prayer. Right. And it's important for me and important for her that I have prayer because I've still got to plant those seeds.
2: Yeah,
3: And and after we pray, I'll say to her, I said, we love you, be careful, drive safely. Yep. Because I want her to know, Daddy loves you. You know, my father loved me, but he said, crack me up. It never came out of his mouth. I would right. say, I said, Dad, I love you. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm okay okay he ne- he he never said it because I guess he never heard it because he never had a father say that to him yeah. you know so it became a running joke to me as, as a kid I always say this to her because some dude's gonna come along someday oh. and say baby 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 you so, so fine you so oh fine you know and you know didn't we go to different high schools together I mean, I mean whatever the line is at the time but I hmm. want her to have a foundation yeah from home that's Bible based not not daddy based but Bible based so that she will be able to discern truth from error yeah and that in a nutshell is my parent my 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 father my my father's style I mean she she's not playing basketball this year and she's just coaching but I still go to the game because she needs to see daddy supporting yeah. her. You know, mommy can't be there. Mommy sometimes out of town, but daddy's gonna be there because I don't ever want you to get to the point that you don't think that daddy's not here.
2: Yeah. You know, man, this is. Uh, I think we'll we'll call it here for this installment. And oh, we're the, just getting warmed up, man. Yeah, yeah. That's that's <laughs> this part part one of the series uh, to be to be named by the time this is published, but. It gave me a lot to think about. Um, I enjoy, I have learned the value of listening and I think I learned it early enough to where it gives me advantage in a lot of situations. Uh, Number one, I don't have to remember what I said hastily. If I listen longer, I might not say anything or when I say something, it will have been thought through. Um, I, I appreciate the lessons. I appreciate the transparency. I appreciate the articulation. And I don't want that to go, and I'm not joking at all, right? Because there's this misconception that if you sound like that, you're not us. (laughs) This is us, right? We are a lot of things. And I appreciate someone that can eloquently tell a story that has meaning and is captivating all at the same time. Is there anything? Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No doubt. No doubt. Is there anything that you're working on now that you want to share with the audience that we can point them to to get more
3: familiar with your work? Sure. Um I am currently working on this book. Um just working on the manuscript now. It's called The US wait, wait, see, da, 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 We'll insert it. We'll get it. We'll get a, we'll get a picture okay. inserted. It. Yeah. It's called The US COVID-19 Crisis. Hmm. What experienced in 2020 what learned in 2021 and what now Hmm. for 2022 it is an update of my original book that i did on the on the subject which was the u.s coronavirus crisis and the rise of silver medal leaders a silver medal leader is a person who is achieving their number one uh embracing their number one they're achieving their number oneness by embracing their number two ness, it's it. people like us who are number two positions that organizations cannot s- thrive or survive without. Yeah, and so I tell the story, and I tell it this time from the perspective of having been a COVID positive victim,
2: yeah,
3: turned po- uh, COVID victor, yeah, and so I'm working on that now, and excited about that. Um, and what I'm excited about, Derek, is that. The first book I did as a print book and as a digital book Mm -hmm. and as an audio book. This one, with God's help, I will do as a print book, as a digital book, as an audio book, as well as, as a video book. Mm.
2: Have I ever, I don't know that I've ever consumed a video book.
3: May not may not right. I mean the, the the statistics are less than one percent of the American people write books Wow, but even beyond that, of that one percent only seven percent of us authors ever do an audio book hmm. and I have no idea how infinitesimally small the percentages of those of video us book. who take who go yeah. to the video book um but what it does is for for people who Want to have a full sensory experience? Yeah, that's my goal here because we we may not have we want information, we don't always have the time to consume it, and so you know we now have the uh, digital books, right? And sometimes we are busy and we want to wash dishes or cook or what have you or drive, and right. so then we have the opportunity of the audio book. I want to give take people one step further, and give them the opportunity to have the video book. that they can look at and observe and absorb in their own space and time so that's the main project i'm working on other than being the loving father and the doting husband gotcha
2: gotcha well we
3: appreciate
2: you uh stopping by virtually i would love to have a conversation in person when life allows i will be traveling uh as soon as the world gets a little bit uh more tolerable uh with travel (laughs) Uh, because I, I have a I have a vision beyond just the, the podcast in its current state. I, I have a documentary in mind. I have several things and I'm connecting with the right people that are going to make that happen. And I'm believing in God that it is going to happen. So I would love to not, I would love to, we will stay in contact because I want to be aware of your progress on all the forms of the book. And I want to make sure I can share that with my audience. Um, Excuse me for a second. I am going to mute you and address my audience and then I'll close it out. To my listening audience on the audio platforms, please make sure that you're following the podcast. Make sure that you rate it. Make sure you leave a review. For those that have enjoyed the visual experience on YouTube, hey, thank you for watching. Make sure you subscribe. Make sure you hit the notification bell so that you're aware every time that I'm dropping content. Uh, Again, we want to thank... Tim Austin for everything that he has provided in this installment. And we look forward to future installments. I am not going to prolong this anymore. I appreciate you guys. God bless you. Peace. The Dear Son Podcast is produced by D. John's Live Studios. All rights reserved. Don't forget to rate and review this podcast on your favorite podcast listening platform. We'll see you here next time.